0: As the ascription indicates, this is a psalm of Asaph. Whether the original Asaph or one of the several that followed him in the Bible, we do not know, and it does not really matter. The point is that this worship leader, this mature believer, was feeling all of a sudden as though God had changed. There had been a shift in Asaph's experiences. We aren't told what it was, but whatever it was, it affected how he felt about God. And that's human nature. We human beings tend to approach God through the lens of our personal experience, specifically our most recent personal experience. And the Psalms very often encourage us to push back against that, because if we don't, we will end up with a culturally located and personally distorted vision of God. And of course, we haven't heeded that warning very well over the last several decades. I've often said that there's no other time in human history that could have given birth To the prosperity gospel as it currently manifests in North America and as it is exported via television and internet to the rest of the world. This particular brand of absolute nonsense could only have emerged out of the 70 year stretch of ever increasing peace and prosperity that we have enjoyed here. It is simply impossible to imagine this brand of ridiculous emerging out of fourth century Northern Africa or 16th century Western Europe, or even 21st century modern Iran. The prosperity gospel is a view on God that has been shaped and refracted by our very narrow experiences. So, all of that to say, this is human nature. We struggle not to view God solely through the lens of our experiences, but it's hard. The struggle is real. And so, thankfully, every once in a while, God shifts our experiences so as to alter our perspective on reality. The preacher in Ecclesiastes reflects on this aspect of providence in Ecclesiastes 7.14. He says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So, Different circumstances allow us to think about God in different ways. Michael Eaton says here, both prosperity and adversity have their uses. One leads to joy. The other draws attention to the realities of life and leads, if so allowed, to a life of faith in a sovereign God. Both are subject to God's will and part of his providence. The constant fluctuation between them keeps us dependent not on our own guesswork but on God who holds the key to all unknown. Quote. Now that last phrase in Ecclesiastes 7.14 is hard to make sense of. What does it mean that man may not find out anything that will be after him? Kiel and Dillage, those world-class Hebrew scholars, say that it means that God causes man to experience good and evil that he may pass through the whole school of life. And when he departs, hence, that nothing may be outstanding in arrears which he has not experienced. Closed quote. That's a very useful phrase the whole school of life. There are multiple courses in the whole school of life, and we learn something different about God in each of them. But as Asaph is lamenting here in Psalm 77, it is hard to move from one class in the whole school of life to another. Specifically, it is really hard to go from Prosperity 101 to Adversity. 101. When the bell rings and you make that switch, it feels for a moment like God has changed. But of course, we know that can't be true. So we mustn't allow ourselves to be demoralized by that. We mustn't wallow in our depression. Rather, we must look deeper and consider wider and remember longer in order to make sense of our current experiences. That is the journey that Asaph shares with us in this remarkably useful psalm. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying, My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. In this first section of the psalm, the focus is clearly on how Asaph feels. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. D.A. Carson says here, Asaph was so despondent he could not sleep. Indeed, he charged God with keeping him from sleep. In verse 4, memories of other times when circumstances were so bright that he sang with joy in the night hours serve only to depress him further. Are you seeing that? Are you feeling that? Brothers and sisters, that is exactly how so many of us are feeling right now. Things were incredibly good just a short time ago, weren't they? I have some pictures hanging in my bedroom of my wife and I at various baseball stadiums around North America. Those pictures represent some of the happiest moments of my life. A game of baseball on a beautiful summer day with my best friend in the whole world is like a little slice of heaven. You could sit there and listen to the sounds and smell the smells and close your eyes and almost believe that you were in the everlasting kingdom. There will be baseball in the everlasting kingdom, my friends. I am reasonably convinced of that. It was a little slice of heaven. And it said something to me about the goodness of God, something true, something marvelous. There are things to be learned about God on sunny days. But now those pictures seem almost to mock me. They torment me. They remind me that the world has changed. And that tempts me to think that God has changed. But of course, He has not. God is still good. Even if they never play baseball again, I hope they do, but baseball or no, sunshine or no, peace or no, prosperity or no, God doesn't change. He is the same whether the sun is shining or covered by a cloud, but how I experience him may change. When the sun goes behind the cloud, I feel colder. There is a real change in me, in my experience. That is the feeling that Asaph is expressing here. And he was thrown by that. He was momentarily destabilized by that. And he begins to process that change in verse 6. He says, Then my spirit made a diligent search. He says, I have to wrap my head around this. What in the world is going on? And what does this mean with respect to the nature and character of the Lord? That's what he's wrestling with in verses 7 and following. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion. J. Alec Montier says marvelously, here is a psalmist in deep trouble. Closed quote. And you know, there's a sense in which we're encouraged by that because it gives us permission to flounder a little bit when we are faced with jarring transitions in life. Apparently it's okay. It's within the acceptable range of normal responses to external stimuli to ask some pretty ill-considered questions in a time of personal crisis. The Bible is very realistic with respect to human weakness. That's one of the things, of course, that we learned in our walk through the book of Job. God let Job get away with some pretty awful statements when he was adjusting to the very jarring changes in his personal experience. Do you remember what Job said in Job 16.9? He said, he, God, has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. I'm reasonably confident that on a sunny day, that statement would have been a sin. Job accused God of hating him. He called God his adversary, his enemy. On a sunny day, he might well have been struck dead for that. But on a cloudy day? A stormy day, a day when the world had been ripped out from underneath them like a rug. Apparently, such statements got a pass. God never condemned Job for saying the things that he did. At the end of the book, God shows up and says to Eliphaz, the leader of Job's friends, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. As my servant Job has, God, did you not even read chapter 16? Job said some pretty awful stuff, Lord. But apparently, God allows us an outburst or two of pain when we are initially responding to shock and trauma. That's good to know. We won't be judged on our first statements or our first questions when our world has been turned upside down. But we mustn't linger in such places. That's why this psalm is here. Psalm 77 now begins to show us how to work our way out of situational doubt and depression. You can see the turning point in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Are you hearing that? I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. The psalmist is saying, I need to get out of my immediate perspective. I need to take a longer view on things. I need to look at reality through the lens of eternity. I need to look at who God is and what God has done across the ages. That's how you think your way out of doubt and depression. You widen the lens of your consideration. Look at verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Now, in Hebrew, that's four words. I'm not sure why the ESV only uses three. The ESV has him thinking about deeds, wonders, works, and then deeds again. But that's a different Hebrew word. All of these words are overlapping. They're all similar. But it might be better to translate one of those words as acts or actions because the impression is supposed to be one of broad consideration. The psalmist is saying, I stopped looking at God through the lens of my own personal experiences and instead began to consider the full scope of his activity over time. I remembered his acts, his wonders, his works, and his deeds. Willem van Gemmeren says here, The psalmist chose his words carefully, so as to create the impression that he is reflecting on the Lord's works in their great variety, in creation, redemption, judgment, and salvation. Closed quote. And that's exactly right. I looked long and I looked wide. That's what the psalmist is saying. And this is the conclusion he comes to in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Now, if you're a little older, you probably remember how the King James Version translated verse 13. It says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Now, that's not wrong. It's just hard to make sense of. The expositor's Bible commentary explains the meaning of the first half of the verse this way. We take it to mean that God's way is on behalf of his people, close quote, meaning that Verse 13 is basically the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, when I took the long view and when I broadened out my perspective, I realized that everything the Lord does is for the end of his own glory and for the good of his own people forever. Thanks be to God. And so having figured that out, he now begins to praise the Lord. Look at verse 14. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. You are a miracle-working God. You are a saving God. You are a father God. Verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, They were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand. Of Moses and Aaron. Are you hearing that? He was thinking about the Exodus. He was thinking about how God frightened the waters of the Red Sea. He was thinking about the thunder and the lightnings of Mount Sinai. He was thinking about the manna and the rock and the wise and life-giving leadership of Moses and Aaron. And as he thought about those things, fear fled away and worship entered in. J. Alec Montier says here, That's why the psalm stops so abruptly. It does not draw a conclusion, but demonstrates a solution. The mind stored with, assured of, resting on the great facts of God's salvation is a mind at rest closed quote. It was enough for the psalmist to remember the exodus. Thinking about that put all his immediate problems in proper perspective. If God could handle that, if God could humble Egypt and terrorize the Red Sea and give law and make a nation out of a rabble of refugees, if he could feed and water a multitude in the desert, then surely he can take care of me. What more was there to say? But of course, as Christians, we do have more to say. We have even greater works of redemption to look back upon. We have the cross and the empty tomb. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the whole word of God. So why in the world would we be afraid? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or pandemic or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My dear friends, that is how you work your way out of situational doubt and depression. It is not a sin to feel anxiety during a pandemic. It is not a sin to wonder what in the world is going on. It is not a sin to feel for a moment as if God has changed. All of that is as natural as feeling a chill when a cloud momentarily obscures the light and heat of the sun. You can feel that way but you can't crawl up into a ball and lose the Lord. You have to push back, and you have to wrap yourselves in the thick, warming truths of Almighty God. W.S. Plumer says fabulously here, Good men know what a tormentor discouragement is. They flee from it. They war against it by resorting to the higher truths Of religion, closed quote. And that's exactly what we see Asaph doing in this psalm. He is warring against discouragement by resorting to the higher truths of religion. And of course, we need to do the same. The Lord has rung the school bell and shaken us right out of our front row seat in Prosperity 101. And now we must find a new seat in our current class, Adversity 101. And we will, quite naturally, feel some initial disorientation. That's okay. But be assured of this. God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So steady yourself, friend. Regain your bearings. Remember his works, his wonders, his acts, and his deeds across the ages. Remember creation and redemption. Remember the cross and the empty tomb. Think about those things. Muse and meditate upon those things, and you will find rest for your soul. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the In of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca.